Philippians chapter number one. When you have found your place, then I'll invite you to stand as we uh, prepare to read God's word today. I'm going to read verses one through six. Philippians chapter one, verses one through six. The passage I'll be preaching, the, at least the, the theme, the concept I'll be preaching is found in verse 6, but let's get this in this context here and see what's going on here. So it starts out in verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The title for this morning's message is this, he'll finish what he started. Being confident of this very thing, and then he says that he which hath begun... A good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, beginnings, um, beginnings are always exciting, aren't they? I was thinking about as I prepared for the month of December, I spent all this month preaching messages that had to do with Jesus Christ because of the Christmas theme. You know, and rather than actually using Christmas as my theme, I, I used Christ as my theme through the month. But um, one of the things that, that, that kept coming to my mind during the year is Christmas really is a beginning it's not the end, it's the beginning. And, and beginnings are always exciting things, like um, the opening kickoff of a championship football game. It's an exciting moment. Or when the starting flag uh, waves at the Indianapolis 500, it's, a, it's an exciting moment. Or uh, the beginning um, sprint of a, of a long-distance race, it's an exciting moment. Beginnings are always exciting kind of things, enthusiastic, uh, spirited, you know, uh, hopeful when something begins, uh, everyone is on equal footing. At the beginning, uh, any team could win. At the beginning, uh, any runner could win the race, it feels like. And uh, so you can be hopeful at the beginning. Uh, beginnings are always exciting things. Uh, for me, uh, growing up the way I did, rodeos, at the beginning was the grand entry. And it was an incredibly exciting moment always. All of the contestants, or I think about this, at least all of the contestants had, ho- had horses. I always was a, did all-around stuff. So I... Um, I, I rode um, uh, stairs and um, and then later bulls uh, as I grew up and uh, but but I also did all of the timed events and so I always had a horse and and uh, I don't know about the guys who were just bull riders what they did during the grand entry if they borrowed a horse or if they just sat around acting tough or something like that I don't know but uh, those of us who had horses we always participated in the grand entry and the grand entry what you know so all of a sudden the the gate to the arena opens up and here comes the American flag you've got someone. Uh, uh, on horse with the American flag and they come in with a horse going full throttle and they're going to go around the arena and then after them will be some flags for the rodeo of the state. Uh, there'll be some other flags that come in and then after all of the flags are in then they got the rodeo queen and her princesses. They'll be on their horses waving as they go by and all that kind of stuff and they're doing their thing and then as soon as all the queens have gone by, the princesses have gone by, then um, every contestant who has a horse races into the arena and everyone rides around the arena and they're doing circles around the arena full throttle and pretty soon the flag bearers they come sliding to a stop in the middle of the arena and after they slide to a stop then everyone else lines up slide to stop lines up right behind the American flag once everyone is stopped 
Then um, the announcer will say, will say something and, and everyone will stand, all of those in the, in the, uh, in the grandstands will stand and take off their hats and the, and the, um, the uh, national anthem is played, all of the cowboys in the arena take off their hats as the na- national anthem is played. And once that's all done, uh, then, uh, you know, and, and a couple of announcements are made, the flag bearer uh, takes off, kicks the horse into a full run from a standing stop to a full run and she does another circle around the arena and everyone and follows her around the arena. We're all going full throttle out of the gate. It's meant to be exciting. That was the point. But I'm going to just tell you, it was, and it was always a lot of fun. But um, let me just tell you something. No one came to the rodeo to watch the grand entry. In fact, truth be told, almost everyone who ever goes to a rodeo comes for the final event. The bull riding. But the thing everyone wants to see is who's going to get tromped on by a bull. That's what everyone comes to see. How many times the ambulance has to haul somebody up. That's why everyone comes to them. And, and uh, you know, whether it's a football game or a car race or a, or a rodeo, beginnings are exciting, but everyone comes for the end. You come to see the end. The whole the beginning is exciting what goes on in the middle is 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 fine and it can be fun and there's things you can do to make it where you can endure you know two hours of football but uh but uh you, everyone comes for the end that's what you come for is for the end and and um for the uh, and i'd like to suggest to you that christmas is like the grand entry the starting place but it's not what christians come for Christmas isn't the reason we're Christians. We as Christians, we're looking ahead. The Bible says that Jesus began a good work in you and me at salvation. And we're confident that he will perform that work until the very end. We're looking forward to the end. We're looking forward to when he is finished with us, when the work is done, when he has kept all of his promises. The the picture of a sporting event, a, a race car or a rodeo or a football game, something like that, it fits well into the word of God, especially this idea of, 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 the, of finishing or ending well. It, it fits well into the word of God because in the New Testament we find the Christian message, oftentimes the gospel, the Christian message often likened to a race or a wrestling match or where Paul said, I fought a good fight and uh, so a boxing match or something like that. It's always, uh, oftentimes in the New Testament, Christianity is likened to this, to a contest, to, to some kind of competition that's going on. And in the competition, so I've got three or four things I want to share with you this morning concerning this competition and the, that we find in the New Testament, this Christian competition or this Christian contest. First of all, we find that there is an epic struggle. And I use the word epic on, pur- on purpose. The word epic means, um, uh, means a long long-term poem. It's not a little short. Uh, it's a long poem or a long story. That's what an epic is. And, and the, contest, uh, the, uh, the contest that we're talking about began uh, when we talk about the Christian contest. It's a contest that began about 6,000 years ago when Eve gave in to the temptations of the serpent. And right then in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, God announces, and here's what he says, the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed 
first above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of life. And then God says this, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Already in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, God is announcing a contest. A competition that there is going to be a contest between uh, between the uh, seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And every word of the Bible from that moment on really is a play-by-play description of this contest between God and Satan. Between the work of the flesh and the work of the spirit. Between that which is of God and that which is of the world. Uh, sometimes I was thinking about it. You know how you'll have sports broadcasters that'll, that'll, their job is to give color. Sometimes when you're reading in the Word of God, there's a lot of color. And God describes clearly to you what is going on in that particular passage. And sometimes there isn't much color at all. All you get is just the facts. Of the, here's what happened. Here's the score. And here's where we are at this point. And uh, so if sometimes you get more detail. Sometimes you get less detail. But all the way through the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3, all the way to the last page of Genesis uh, of Revelation in chapter 22, what you're finding, what you're seeing is a contest that is being waged between uh, good and evil, God and Satan, the spirit and the flesh, and, uh, and, 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 um, and that which is of God and that which is of the world. One of the mistakes I think that we often make um, as we observe this contest that's going on, um, one of the mistakes I think that we often make when we think about this Christian contest is that we think of ourselves as the players. Uh, we, we think, you know, it's between um, people who are Christians and people who are non-Christians. And we think of ourselves as the player. That's not really true. We're the pieces. Um, this is, the contest is between God and the devil. Uh, in instance, for instance, Second uh, Timothy chapter two and verse twenty-six, the Bible says that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. I'm thinking now of a chess game here, and, and it sounds like this is what's going on. The devil has the ability at his will. Those who are unbelievers, he can just take them and move them where he pleases and use them as he chooses. They are the contest is between the devil and the Lord, but the and the pieces that are being used in the game are. You and I are people in this world. The devil plays us like pawns in a chessboard. Of the, of the, the, uh, the Bible says of the Lord, though, it says Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, but after that the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And you see it again. The devil can just take people and move them where he wants. But the Bible says on God, God's side of the board, that this is all the work that God is doing through Jesus Christ. As in any contest, the, 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 the winning line looks like it shifts back and forth. Um, between the contestants, and sometimes a football. What I'm thinking of right now, sometimes you know that 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 line of scrimmage it moves back and forth, and 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 sometimes you look at the scoreboard and it'll look like one side is winning, and then it looks like the other side is winning, and and it, and and from moment to moment, uh, 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 who looks like they're uh, in the lead can can change, but that's a little bit deceptive in the competition that we're talking about scripturally. Um, uh, I'm reminded of uh, of a line that Rush Limbaugh used to say. I don't know if he still says it or not. 
not, but he would announce his program and say, with one hand tied behind my back just to make it fair to the liberals. And uh, the truth of the matter is there's no contest between God and the devil. We might look at it and it looks like it's shifting back and forth and one side's winning, then the other side's winning and one side. And there for a little while we're holding our breath, you know, because it looks like our side is on the losing end. And then other times we're raw, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And it looks like we're back on the winning side. But the truth of the matter is there really is no contest. This is a no contest contest. There really is no contest. God has this thing wrapped up. The Word of God very clearly tells us that in the last days, evil men will wax worse and worse. And, um, and it'll look like the devil is winning. But it's all part of God's plan. By the way, I think, I think it is very important in these days in which you, that you and I live in, I think it is very important for us to remember that the Bible tells us in the last days, evil men will wax worse and worse. Um, the Bible promises us that God is going to win, but the Bible warns us that it's going to appear as if he's losing. It is incredibly important for us to keep that in mind and not to take our eyes off the game. I think a lot of Christians that I know get discouraged and despondent. They're looking out there and they think the devil's winning and they think that Christianity is on the decline and they think that God is, is, is failing in his promise or failing in his plan and that things are falling apart. No, everything is going exactly like God said it would go and we don't want to, we don't want to lose confidence in God. We don't want to lose faith in the word of God. We want to trust him and stay true to him to the very end of this you know what i and i am not a sports person so i probably shouldn't even do this but you know it seems to me like whenever i hear someone talk about like the seahawks the seahawks their their whole game is played in the very few last minutes and that's how god's playing this game he's going to give the devil all the time he needs so that god can win at the end it's just the way he's playing the game. And God is very clear about that. It may look sometimes like the evil has the upper hand, but this contest is, is already decided in eternal, in, in heaven. Christianity is a, a contest, first of all, with an epic, with an epic struggle. Secondly, Christianity is a contest, um, where there is a, a triumphant victory. In Revelation chapter one, verses one through three, the Bible says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ in all things that he saw. And then the Bible says, Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And you want to talk about a, an epic contest. The book of, of, of the revelation of Jesus Christ beats any sporting event you're going to see that you've ever witnessed on this earth. Uh, the, the main uh, text of the book of Revelation um, uh, covers a period of time of about 1,000 years, just over 1,000 years. There's a seven, there are seven years of tribulation where the devil, having no restraints placed upon him, unleashes all of the evil that he can muster upon this earth. And uh, to the chagrin of the serpent, God uses all of the, of the 
devil's um, uh, plans, all of the all of the, the 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 wickedness of the Antichrist. God uses all of it for His purpose and His glory. And one after the other, there's the seven seal judgments, and then the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven vial judgments, and there's like seven woes. And and um, when you read it in the Bible, it looks like one happens, and the other happens, and the other happens, and the other happens. I I don't really think it happens that way. I think what happens is there's the seven seal judgments, and on top of those, the seven trumpet judgments. On top of those, the seven vile judgments. On top of those, there's the seven woes. It's all happening at one time. This world will be racked with uh, with pain and judgment and torment and earthquakes and, uh, and all of those kind of things going being poured out upon the earth at the same time. And while this is going on, the devil is deceiving men and women. Um, but first of all, by making it appear that his antichrist has died and risen again from the dead. And now here's the one that we can trust. And here's the one that we can follow. He has died and risen from the dead. One did that already. But during the tribulation period, there'll be people who are deceived by someone who claims to have died and risen from the dead. And all the time that this is going on, stars fall from the sky. Water turns into blood. Antichrist uh, controls the kingdoms of this world and commands the exchange of commerce and condemns all who will not receive his mark to death. And uh, Jews and Gentiles alike, all this going on, Jews and Gentiles alike, all who profess the name of Jesus Christ are hunted down and massacred by the beast and the false prophet. But God during this time has 144,000 witnesses who are supernaturally protected and they're scouring the earth and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ so that regardless of how many the Antichrist is able to capture and condemn and kill, uh, so many are saved during the tribulation period uh, out of every nation and kindred and tongue and tribe that the Bible says you can't even count them so many people are saved during this period of time. And uh, Antichrist is certainly going to, can't kill them all, there's just too many of them. And just when you think the devil has reached his zenith, the Bible says, except that this time be shortened, there'd be no one saved, no flesh saved. Just when you think the devil has reached his zenith of power and might and, and you know, glory in this earth, all of a sudden a brightness appears out of the eastern sky. And Jesus and the hosts of heaven come riding in glory toward the earth. It's going to take time. The Bible talks about when Jesus left that it was something that was bodily, visibly, and gradually. And then it promises that when he comes again, it'll be that same thing. It'll be physically, it'll be visible, and it'll be gradual. And so they see him coming out of sky, Jesus, and uh, the armies, the hosts of heaven with him. But it's taking long enough as he comes gradually down that uh, Antichrist calls together the forces of evil, the kings and the princes with their armies, and they all gather, uh, assemble, and rush to Israel to face off with Jesus Christ in the valley of Megiddo. The battle unfolds for us like this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat of the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. 
I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse which sword proceedeth out of his mouth and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. It's a no contest contest. It doesn't, you know, these armies gather together at Megiddo to fight Jesus and his armies. But the armies of Christ don't even get involved in this thing. They are, they are slain. The enemy is slain with the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He just speaks. And it's so. They're defeated. Those armies are slain. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. And Jesus Christ sets his throne in the city of Jerusalem. But still the contest isn't over. That's just the first seven years of the tribulation of the, of the book of Revelation. And the contest isn't over yet. And Antichrist and the false prophet and the beast are thrown into the lake of uh, uh, fire and brimstone. But, uh, but the devil is cast into the bottomless pit. He's chained there, the Bible says, just for a thousand years. And, and I can't explain why this happens. But the Bible says after a thousand years, God looses the devil. Upon this earth. 1,000 years Jesus Christ has ruled and reigned in the city of Jerusalem. One, for 1,000 years, uh, people have known nothing but perfection. They've known nothing but paradise. A world where the child can play with the wolf and the lamb, or the lamb can play with the wolf and the child can uh, lay on the cockatrice den, the poison uh, snake's den, uh, and nothing will harm them. The Bible uh, speaks about a time of absolute peace and uh, where they were ruled and reigned with the rod of God, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. People talk about that. If Jesus would just tell me what to believe, if Jesus would come down and just tell me what's right and wrong, which Bible I should use and which church I should go, if Jesus would just do that, I'd do the right thing. And they're lying through their teeth. They probably don't even know they're lying. Because about what happens during the, the, the thousand year reign of Christ is Jesus is right there telling people how to live. And what is right and what is wrong. But after a thousand years, Satan is loosed from that bottomless pit. And he's able to, how in the world is this possible? He is able to assemble from among those people who have known nothing but the perfection of Jesus Christ. He is able to assemble an army against God. Almost nothing is said about whatever battle, about the battle that takes place. Uh, it, uh, Satan's armies, the Bible, you know, he, Satan is loosed. He gathers together these armies of People that have, have lived under the, 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 uh, under, uh, the leadership of Jesus Christ for these thousand years. He gathers together an army. And the Bible says the armies of the devil encamp the saints. And then fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. That's all it says. Satan assembles an army. The army comes and surrounds the people of God. And God kills them. That's all it says. And then the Bible says the devil is cast in the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, never to be released again. Is that not an unbelievable triumph? I mean, if you think about what's just happened over these 1,007 years... And all of that stuff right at the beginning of the battle, you know, the seven years of back and forth looking thing, you know, and God throwing, if you 
picture it this way. God hurling stars from the sky on the earth and the devil slaying Christians as fast as he can. And, and you see all of this going on. And then Jesus comes down and it looks like the whole thing is over. He just speaks and their armies are gone and he sets up his kingdom. And you think, oh man, this thing is, it's a done deal now. But then the devil able, able to show up again and put together an army. Thing. And then Jesus just, there it is. The firefall come from God falls down and they're gone. This thing is unbelievable. Who, who, who could have ever called it that way? Where else but in the Bible would you find an outcome like the one we see here? It is, there is this epic struggle and there is this triumphant victory. But then Christianity is a contest in which there is finally this glorious reward. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 3. The Bible saw, it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. You know, whether... Um, Back to the sportings events. Whether it's taught you, it's the all-around belt buckle that a cowboy would receive, or a Super Bowl ring, or a Winners' Cup, maybe at the Indianapolis 500. The same is true in the contest between the Lord and the devil. There is a the contest ends with the victor's reward. The difference is in this contest that when Jesus wins the pri- when Jesus wins the victory it's you and I who get the reward for all of eternity we live with Christ now you don't want to say that you're his reward right so it must be that he's our reward he wins the victory But we get the prize. The devil uses people as pawns in his battle. But God sees all of us as his children. And when Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, finally defeats Satan, you and I who are born again by faith and adopted into God's family, we share the spoils of the victory. The Bible says we become joint heirs with Jesus. We get a mansion prepared for us in glory by Jesus. And we live with God for all of eternity. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says this. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What he's saying there is, I am confident of this, that the thing that God started in you, he will finish. He'll perform. Perform is another way of saying finished. The thing that God began... When he spoke into existence the heavens and the earth and Adam and Eve, the thing that God began, nothing changed when Eve gave in to the temptation and Adam chose to follow his wife into disobedience. 
nothing, nothing changed during all of those years of, of, um, of, of, of uh, compromise and idolatry that Israel went through. God chose out Abraham and from Abraham called out a, a nation of people. The Bible says like sand on the seashore and stars innumerable. And God calls them out to be a, a, a children, a, a people of his choice. And, um, and though they, though they compromised and, and, and fell into idolatry and eventually rejected Jesus Christ, nothing changed in the plan of God. And you and I were born again. And, and we don't always live up to um, our title as believers, do we? But when you mess up, you fall into sin and you don't do as you ought to do, nothing changes in the plan of God. The thing that He began in you will be performed. He will finish what he started. I'm telling today that, that I am confident and, and you can be confident. I, I am confident that the Bible is true. I am confident that heaven and hell are real. I am confident that, that you will live if, either in heaven or hell depending upon your faith. I am confident that faith in Christ is the way to heaven. And I am confident that if you will ask him to, he'll save you right now. And if you will surrender to Him, He will use you the rest of your life. Being confident of this very thing. That He which hath begun a good work in you. Christianity isn't what we're doing. It's what He's doing. That He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. person who'll come up and look you in the eyeballs and say, you need to change that. That's a friend. 
Hiram is ever a lover of David. The Bible says, and the word ever there, it means, um, it means from sunrise to sunset. Um, it, um, look at just the concordance, this dictionary, the Hebrew dictionary, um, the word ever, all whole or by implication from sunrise to sunset. Hiram, he's, it's a friendship that never ended. It is a friendship that, um, uh, that extended to be a help of David. It is a friendship that not only was he a friend of David, he became a friend of David's son. It was a friendship that even extended past a period of disagreement. So, uh, and we're not, I, this isn't part of the message, so I'm just going to barely point this out. But, um, it isn't, so he's, Hiram is David's friend in David's life. He, Hiram is Solomon's friend when Solomon becomes king. But there comes a point where Solomon and Hiram have a disagreement agreement. Um, and we're not going to go through the story, but Solomon pays Hiram, gives I, Hiram is helping Solomon build the temple. And uh, in exchange for helping him build the temple, Solomon gives to Hiram, uh, I think it's 20 cities. And Hiram says, what are these? I mean, if you're going to give me a gift, give me something that's worth something. It's, you know, I mean, there is a disagreement. Uh, you know, they have a disagreement, and yet, even though there is a disagreement, they they still remain friends. They continue their um, their their activities together, their work together, their cooperation together. They they stay friends, and and I just want to tell you. Um, it has been my my experience as a Christian and as a member of a local independent Baptist church for the last um, thirty. Eight years or something like that, that uh, we've been married almost 38 years and I became a Christian, started going to church just a little bit before we got married. It has been my experience since then, since, since faithfully uniting with the local church that I have, I've developed now some, uh, I have developed some uh, friendships that some that have lasted uh, all of my life and some that have become um, great friends. Some of my friends have become friends of my children now and they are my friends and they have been a help and a blessing to me, but now they they have extended that friendship to Bohannon and to Caleb, and they are as good of friends, in fact, I always joke around with Dave Brown, Dave Brown is about as good a friend as pastor, as good a friend as I've got, uh, Dave Brown and Yakima but if I want to talk to Brother Brown I, will, I ask Caleb to call him because Brother Brown will answer the phone for Caleb he won't answer the phone for me <laughs> I'm just one of his preacher friends Caleb though, Caleb will you call Brother Brown, Brother Brown, yeah I'm right here, just like that. So he's my friend, and he's my son's friend, and he's Bohannon's friend as well. And um, um, I have some friends, friendships since I've become uh, since I've become a Christian and got hooked up in local, united with the local church. I have some friendships that have withstood some terrible disagreement. Um, I have a preacher friend. I won't give his name. I have a preacher friend that. Um, he and I had a disagreement about a missionary and when I was still pastoring in the state of Oregon. And uh, there was a guy who had pastored in the state of Oregon. Uh, and he had, um, he had resigned his church. There was a very little church. And uh, no, in fact, it had come to a place there were no people in the church anymore. It had a little building that was uh, the city had threatened to be condemned. And, and this guy comes to me and says, I, God, I believe, is calling me to be a missionary. Uh, and, um, and I'd like to be sent out of your church. And, um, and, and what I'd like 
to do is, um, is I'd like to sell that property to help me to buy a vehicle that I can drive uh, as I'm out on deputation. And the only thing that was stood in the way of this was another pastor in, that was in a neighboring ta- town to that one. And so I called the guy up and he says, yeah, that makes sense to me. I understand. I'll be fine. He agreed that, that this would be a reasonable thing to do. And so uh, he, the guy sold the property, he bought the van, and, um, and then we went to, the, to Springfield, Missouri, so that he had to go through a process of being approved as a missionary um, through the Baptist Bible Fellowship. And uh, so the morning that, and I was supposed to, rec- I was the one, he's coming out of my church, so I went to Springfield, Missouri, so that I could recommend him to the pastors there as a, as a, as a new missionary. And I got there to Springfield, and this preacher friend who had told me that it was okay for him to sell the property, came up to me the day that we're going to have the meeting and said, um, I've changed my mind. I'm going to oppose this publicly at the meeting. And I've put together a group of friends to help me oppose it. He did it in a way where I had no time to get people who supported what we were doing. He had put together a team to disagree with what we were doing and had not given me time. And when I got home from that meeting, one of my preacher friends said, we need to go up, we, we need to censure that guy. We need to let him know he's not allowed in our fellowship meetings. We need to, I mean, what he did to you was stinks and we need to, and I said, no, 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 you know. He did what he thought was right. And uh, that preacher and I are very, very good friends to this day. And... Uh, some of that, you just when you've got good friends, it withstands those signs. So I, don't, I don't want you to think that everything in church has been rosy and sweet for 38 years. I mean, there have been things that have broken our hearts, and you will find that there are times where there is heartbreak. And when you become, when you become a member of an independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist church, you get this close to this many people. All of the time, I promise you, some of them are going to say some things, do some things, act some ways that hurt your feelings sometimes. And um, it's just going to happen there. But the benefits outweigh the troubles by far. And so David has this friendship. The second benefit, I think, is, uh, and the benefits become so obvious. The second benefit is the, that the benefits are obvious. The, the benefits are so obvious to King David that he develops this concept that he's blessed of God. Um, look at, um, I've got two verses for you. Second Samuel chapter five and verse 10. David went on and grew great and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So he is being blessed in verse 12. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. He would all of a sudden says, Hmm, I think I'm blessed. God is blessing him so much that he's one day says the thought occurs to him. I think I'm blessed. I don't know if you've ever had that sensation where you where you know, I think a lot of us struggle in our life so much and we and, and we know our failures. We know our faults. We know and all of us have um, things we'd like to accomplish in our lives. Even spiritually, we have things we'd like to accomplish spiritually that things we'd like to have happen to us. Uh, some of us, I think, um, are so busy just living that we do, we really don't even think about whether we're blessed of God or not. We just do what we do and you know, go to church and I do what I'm supposed to do. And I and, and we get into habits and things. But it is an incredible thing. To realize God blesses me. And David comes to that place in his life. God is blessing me. 
So um, I notice a couple of things that I see in, in these two verses. Um, I'm going to try to take the two, uh, verse 10 and verse 12, and I see something, one thing in verse 10 and another thing in verse 12 I want to point out to you. First of all, in verse 10 there is this fact of God's blessing. David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. That's a fact. God was with him. God was blessing him. That's a fact. And may I tell you that the Bible promises as a matter of fact, God is with you and blesses you. If you're a child of God, if you're faithful to God, you're doing what God wants in your life. And, and I'm not saying you have to be perfect at it because no one is. David wasn't either. But a child of God, the Bible promises he is with you. And blesses you. It's a matter of fact. In uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I'll be with thee. And through the rivers, thou shalt not; they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Now, did you notice what God says? He says, wait a minute. Here, you're going to pass through the waters. And you're going to go through the rivers. And you're going to walk through the fire. Those things are going to happen to you. But don't fear. I'm with you. They're not going to overflow you. You're not going to get burned up by these, consumed by those things. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Um, so there's an Old Testament promise. God says, you're mine, I've redeemed you. That means saved. I've redeemed you, I've saved you. You are mine, I will be with you through the difficulties of your life. It's a fact. But the promise goes on, of God's promise goes on from the Old Testament into the New Testament. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And listen, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. It's a fact. It's a promise of God. It's a fact. He is with you. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. It's a fact. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. It is a fact. God's presence and God's blessing on the child of God is a fact. The Bible very clearly teaches that when we're saved, when we're faithful, and even when we're tempted, God is with us and helps us. He blesses us. It's a fact. But notice um, that not only is there this fact of God's presence, but in 2 Samuel 5, there is this perception of God's blessings. In uh, chapter 5, verse 12, David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. So it's one thing to have the Bible promise. It's another thing to believe it, to sense it, and to live it. And may I suggest to you that the difference between the victorious Christian and the one who struggles in their spiritual life is that one knows what the Bible says and the other lives what the Bible says. I don't want to mean I'm not trying to be um, judgmental or to be a, a, accusatory right now, but I but I just this is an absolute truth. Most of us in this room 
know what the Bible says, but we don't believe it. We don't live it. We know what the Bible says, but we've got all of our exceptions. Why what the Bible says doesn't apply to me? Until we come to the place in our spiritual life where we'll say, this is, this is the teaching of the Bible, therefore this is how I live. This is the teaching of the Bible, therefore this is what I believe. This is the teaching of the Bible, therefore this is how I perceive my world. Until we come to that place, we're going to struggle. We're going to be miserable. We're going to struggle in our spiritual life until we come to the place where we say, this is the, what the Bible says. Therefore, this is how I respond and behave in my life. We're going to struggle in our lives. It's just, it's just the way it is. For the most part, the difference between um, the one who knows the truth and the one who lives the truth is a matter of faith or acceptance. And every one of us will be best off if we simply just believe the Bible and behave according to what we learn. Now, last thing uh, today, I've got one more point, and and really this is a um, it's not even a point. It's just something I need to add because it's there in the passage, and it happens to be Father's Day. And then the fourth point today is there's this thing about the concubines and his, David's concubines and his children. Look at verses 13 through 16. David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. These be the names of those that were born unto him in Jerusalem. The only I think there's two names here that are significant for us. Nathan and Solomon. And uh, I'm not going to read them again right now, but uh, and and really Nathan and Solomon are the two. These are these are key players in the history of Israel. Nathan and Solomon, the children of David. Um, but here's the, so here's David. He is anointed king of Israel, and after waiting for 14 years, he finally becomes what God has promised him to be. And in now having that place, he does he, he, he realizes what God, the, the authority, he takes the city of Jerusalem, establishes his throne uh, and because of it, he is blessed of God, and he recognizes the blessings of God in his life. He has this good friend uh, that he d- develops this really great relationship with Hiram, and he realizes the blessings of God, and then David does something that happens time and time again in the Bible. Being blessed, he steps into the flesh. Um, you see it happening several times with the kings of Judah, especially in, in the, the southern kingdom of Judah, David's children who follow him in the line. There are several of them are, that are very good kings, and because they are good kings, godly men who tear down the idols and build up the restore worship in the temple, God, because uh, they are obedient to God, God blesses them, and because God blesses them, they, be, they grow in strength and power, and then as soon as they become grow in strength and power, they get lifted up in, pl- in pride and they do the wrong thing. It happens over and over among David's children. And they got it from their dad. And it's his children and his children's children, his grandchildren. So it's talking about his family. They got it from the founder of their family. David was not exempt of the same thing. He um, abused his power and created havoc in his family because of it. He has all this power. He is blessed of God. And what I, what do you want to do with your blessings, David? I know. I'm going to get myself a whole bunch of wives. And otherwise. 
I'm, we're not going to go into detail concerning David and his concubines and all that. That's not important right now, and you know what all that means. But I just want to remind you that God's blessings, God's blessing in your life doesn't give you permission to, God, to ignore God's word. So long as you do, so long as you do as the word says, you're going to find that though you still have struggles, you have answers to those struggles and God's blessing you. Whether it's through, uh, it, but if whether through um, rebellion or stubbornness or like in the case of David, it's pride. You choose to turn from the word of God. You are going to find your life has calamity. God wants blessings in your life and God, God will never leave you or forsake you. But if you choose to live contrary to God's word and you do what is natural, you're going to find that God has some consequences that are supernatural in your life.